dress as they are and keep your clothes on. I've had more than my fill. Whiskey and women and good-hearted villains But there's a wickedness in me still And we're back with uh, another episode of A Beer With. I am sitting in Mount Pleasant at Flood Tide Co.'s headquarters with none other than the bartender-in-chief, Paul Puckett. Paul? How's it going, buddy? Hey, 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 Lair. Hey, Lair Bear. Now, is that is that a beer with semicolon or a beer with comma? I would say a beer with semicolon. I think so too. Yeah, I feel good about the semicolon. I mean, I, was I guess there never... could be a dash in there, but semicolon. I'm feeling the semicolon. Yeah, semicolon would definitely work. Um, but you could even, you know, just dash it out. Um, Da- uh, dine and dash, little little drink and dash, little hog and jog, <laughs> hog and jog. I've never heard that one. Oh yeah, that's that's one of the uh, euphemisms we used for it back. Uh, I like it when we were down on the strip at the bottom mm. of the hill there in Tennessee. Mm. Yeah, have you ever taken liberties with uh, an innkeeper and and done a dine and dash? Liberties. So I don't know. I don't know what you're calling liberties, but no, I've never done the dine and dash. I've dreamed of it. Yeah, I've uh, I've thought about it, like where where it might lead to you like just, the different scenarios. The never, risk to reward ratio never worked out that you were able to pull the trigger. No, no. So, now the closest thing to dine and dash that a buddy of mine has done is Will Abbott in college. Okay. Now we've we've talked about this on a, on a different broadcast before, but that old boy. Decided that he wanted a pizza walking two miles away from the bar, or two miles away from his house, out of the bar. I mean, he tells it better than me, but the point is, it was like pizza, and they deliver. So he walked up and then that pizza joint about one thirty in the morning and said, "I want a pizza." And like, do you want it? Del- do you want it uh, for takeout? And he's like, "No, no, I want it delivered, and you're going to deliver me as well." So that's kind of dine and dashy, but he, so he. Had them deliver it, and he got in the car and and rode with them. Yes, <laughs> so <laughs> that's pretty. It's pretty amazing. Pretty shrewd. That's a little Abbott for you, though. Yeah, he is. Uh, so the kind of guy that makes shit happen. He does, man. He, he sees what, what would we call that? That's like the big picture. He's view. a visionary. He's a visionary. Yeah. How am I going to get home tonight and eat? <laughs> so you know, he does the Will Abbott waddle. You that's know, right. Out of the bar that whole. You know, hands down, waddling around. I was like, man, I'll just get a pizza. I don't need to ride home. They deliver. They deliver. Bam. They'll deliver me so in little, that box. Little, that's a pro tip for you out there. There's going to be a run on pizza delivery over the next few weekends mm-hmm. after this gets put up. Yeah. So. Well, uh, that that's a great college story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Paul, I'm pretty sure that there's a lot of people that will listen to the podcast that would say, I know old Paul Puckett. And... They may know you, yep. but how well do they know you? And yeah, that's kind of more about what I want to do this evening is starting back when uh, old Paul Puckett was knee-high to a grasshopper. Where'd you grow up? So Dallas, Texas, where I was born, raised, and spent, I mean, 90% of my life until I was 18. And then I spent a lot of summers, though, in Tyler, Texas, where my grandparents were. And that's where my parents were raised as well. So I got that perfect, I mean, I, I had the perfect childhood. 
Uh, I had great parents. I grew up in a great house. My dad was a teacher. We grew up in an amazing neighborhood in Dallas called Highland Park. And so all my friends were, I mean, just simple to say, they were super rich. Okay. Now, so you, you, you grew up in a very affluent part yeah. of Dallas. I mean, it's, it's like Beverly Hills in Texas. Okay. And where I was lucky is my parents wanted me to grow up in that atmosphere, but my dad was a teacher. So he rented, they rented a house their whole life, or not their whole life, but until I was 18, essentially. So I could go to school in this district. And so, you know, all my parents, all my, all my friends' parents were doctors, lawyers, owned companies. And so I got, I got the best of both worlds. I got to grow up in a, in a humble household where you didn't get too ahead of yourself. You, you appreciated what you had, mm-hmm. but you also got the benefits of going to Rangers and Cowboys games, sitting in box seats. And the, so I, I was very lucky in having that type of, that type of uh, growing up, basically. Now, you said dad was a teacher. Yeah, chemistry teacher. Mom just... But she was a secretary at a, at a community college in Dallas. Okay, so both parents working. Yeah, both parents working. My mom took the bus to work. Like, she just didn't care. Like, yes, she could drive a car down there, but she was like, I don't want to deal with parking. Parking is like 100 bucks a month. So she'd get in a bus and drive to work uh, in a bus. And, and uh, yeah, so it was, it was a, I got to see the best of both worlds growing up. So did you, when you got to high school? Yep. Did you go to school where your dad was yeah. a teacher? Yep. So I grew up my whole life in that in that high school because uh, all my carpools that I was a part of, they'd always drop me off at the high school because I always lived within two blocks of the high school. Okay. Like, so my dad would always walk to work, and uh, so instead of having babysitters or whatever, I would go to my dad's class, and he would be literally in the middle of class. And I would walk in, sit in the back of the classroom, do my homework. So fifth grade, there would be a little fifth grader walking in the back of the senior chemistry class. So growing up in that high school, by the time I got to high school, I wasn't scared of high school at all. Right, Even, it was old hat. Oh, it was. I grew up my whole life in that high school. So, but the funny thing is, I was five foot tall my freshman year in high school. I was tiny. I was also five foot tall my sophomore year in high school. So freshman year, you know, I'm all confident walking first day of school. These two seniors grab me I was tiny tiny kid grab me in the I don't know if you remember the the art displays the sliding glass yes it was like a like a two foot inset into the wall mm-hmm. and they're you know probably six foot or five foot tall anyway these two seniors grabbed me opened those and put me in there and locked it so I was like <laughs> locked in this art display and I'm just like sitting there that's it whatever who cares so now I was on the way to my dad's class to get lunch money first day of school freshman year Someone let me out of that thing, and I walked to my dad's room. Those two guys are in my dad's room. And they see me walking in like, what the, what's this kid doing? And I walked up to my dad, and I just whispered in his ear, looking at them, hey, dad, I need, I need three bucks for lunch, man. I, don't, I forgot to get it this morning. So I'm whispering it, making those kids think I'm sitting there ratting them out. Right. Goes, okay, okay, okay. So he hands me the lunch, man, and I walk out just kind of glaring at those guys, and they're just looking at me like, Oh, they shit. figured it out. That right. Obviously, this is Dr. Puckett's son, so they, didn't, they never mess with me again. So, But, yeah, growing up in that high school was uh, was a great experience, and I had a really cool childhood growing up, played baseball. My dad loved baseball. 
my dad was a guitarist, um, flamenco, classical guitarist. My mom was a quilter. So every weekend, would my dad and I would go eat barbecue, drive the MG, uh, the MGB around uh-huh. uh, White Rock Lake, and then we'd go back and make model cars and model airplanes. That was like kind of the in a in a just the. Easiest way to describe my childhood, weekends with dad. This idyllic. Eating barbecue. All American. Yeah, making model airplanes, model cars, and playing baseball. So when did you get introduced to fishing? Through my summers, my dad would do these high school trips to Europe. So he'd be gone for a month taking kids to Europe through the high school. And my mom would go like every other year. So I would have a full month with my grandparents. Both sets of them. So I would spend two to three nights with mom's parents, then they'd switch. Then two to three nights with dad's parents. Both granddads love fishing. So one of them loved fishing more than the other one. But the one that loved fishing was my dad's dad. And he said, just, hey, anytime you want to go, you just tell me. Well, that's pretty much every day. So... Every day would be my granddad and I going fishing. And then when I'd get dropped off at the other grandparent, that was kind of like not as much fishing. Right. Like he just wasn't into it as much and just didn't really know as much about it. But we'd go to the river catfishing. But really what I wanted to be doing was bass fishing. And that was the other grandparent. So I kind of got a little bit of both worlds. But uh, So were you fishing like off of shoreline? Were no, you out in a little boat? Like little Texas ponds. Okay. So, our family's owned a lot, like, between, like, you know how people back in the 1920s, they had, like, seven brothers and sisters. Sure. So each grandparent, like, had five, six, seven brothers and sisters, and they all owned little plots of land in East Texas. So they all had what we call a tank. In Texas, they call them tanks. Okay. Just like a little... It's like a little corner anchor pond. Right. Yeah. So we would be like, all right, today we're going to the so-and-so tank. So every day we had a new place to fish. We never really ever went to, like, Lake Tyler or Lake Palestine. Never any big bodies. It was always small, obtainable pieces of water where you would always catch two or three bass. You know what I mean? The, 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 the fish probably hadn't seen anyone in God knows how long. So Any any big bass no, end up in any of those? You know, what's crazy is my, I spent my whole childhood Texas bass fishing. The, the biggest fish I ever caught was a five-and-a-half-pound bass. Okay. Which is crazy. I mean, I I did a lot of bass fishing, and the, still the biggest bass I've ever caught is a five-and-a-half-pound bass. To this day? Yeah, to this day. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. It's just, it's just I don't know, whatever. So I've caught a lot of bass, just never anything like old one-eyed Willie up there on the wall that right. I haven't caught. I think that's an 11-and-a-half-pound bass. That's a big bass. But, yeah, so it's just one of those things. And about the time sophomore year is when I started fly fishing, How'd that happen? Four bass. Before that, I was doing it like in ninth grade, I think, or eighth grade for trout. But when I'd go bass fishing, I'd pick up a plastic worm. I just didn't really connect fly fishing and bass fishing. Together. So did your grand- grandfathers introduce yeah. you to fly fishing as well? Yeah, my dad's dad did. Okay. So I'd be on the dock with a cricket and a cork catching bluegill, and he'd mm-hmm. be over there casting a fly rod for bass. And at the time, I didn't know it was a fly rod. I just knew he was doing something different. Right. I was probably when I was 10 or 11 years old. And, uh, you know, of course, as a 
inquisitive, curious young kid. I was like, what are you doing? Like, why, why are you going to that much trouble to throw a lure out for these? What are you doing? I just didn't really comprehend it. And he was just like, one day I'll teach you. Like, you need to master this before you can do this. So that's kind of where, that's what planted the seed. So I just, it was kind of that mysterious, attainable yet unattainable at the time. You need to learn how to throw a bait caster. Okay. You need to learn all these things before you can learn this. So I was like, man, okay. But then I kind of shut it out. I was like, okay, that's fine. I can, I can do that. And then, you know, it got to the point where he passed away before he could ever teach me. So in like 1988, we took my grandmother like three or four months after my granddad died, took her to the Ozarks to Branson, Missouri, like every old people's dream. Heck yeah, man. Go see, uh, what is his name? Kenny Rogers. And Andy, uh, can't think of that old classic, like 50 singer, Andy, uh, anyway. God dang it. Anyway, we, t- we you'll, took her you'll to think see, of it. Yeah, we took her to see all those shows, you know. Uh-huh. Well, what I found out is that it was close to uh, Branson, Missouri. It was close to Springfield, Missouri, which is where Bass Pro Shops is from. Okay. And it's on the White River, Lake Tanicomo. It's not really a lake. It's like a moving lake. It's mm-hmm. dammed up. But So I grabbed all his fly rods because I've always, by that point, had equated fly fishing to trout fishing, mm-hmm. not so much bass fishing. So. I knew I'd be able to do a little fly fishing, and I've got, I still have a video of it. I, I could show you. It's pretty funny. A DVD of me casting a fly rod for the first time. I was like 13 years old, and it's just me slapping the water on both sides. Like, this is the first time I've ever done but, it. But this is you doing it by yourself, like yeah. with no coaching prior no coaching. to. This just, is like you picked it up, and you yep. said, "Yep, I'm going to do this. I, I remember my granddad doing it. So right. I'm just going to do what I so think. So you're emulating what you recall yeah. him doing. No, I couldn't even cast it 15 feet, like, without a slap in the water. And all these trout, 30 feet are out sipping, just eating, rising off the top. And I'm like, what the? So from that moment, that was it. Like, I was addicted. Like, from that second on, there are fish feeding in front of me on the surface. And I can't even cast it 15 feet. So what did, the hell? Did you go about it the hard way? Or did you find somebody to help you? Nah, just hard way. And my dad, you know, he's 30, 30 yards down the river with, you know, power bait, catching the shit out of trout. Uh-huh. He's like, Paul, just put the damn fly rod down. Let's do it this old-timer. This old-timer's told me what we need to do to catch these fish. I don't know why you keep doing that damn fly fishing. That's what my dad's <laughs> telling me, you know. I'm like, that's he, he, he never bought into no, it. No, he, he, he was always open to it. I taught him over the years, but he never understood the – the mystique of the fly rod. Right. He was either there or here, like, yeah, sure, if the fish are eating this, I don't care about the fly rod. I'm going to use this. So, right. So, yeah. He's less the, of a process guy and more of a results guy. He's a results guy. Okay. Yeah, classic Texas, like, man, I'm going to catch my limit today. That's my dad. Right. Showing up with seven rods and three tackle boxes. And then if you were to fast forward from 1988 to, like, 2002, when I was living in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. He was like, man, I really, I'm liking this fly fishing, man. Like, you don't have to bring three tackle boxes. And <laughs> seven, like, you know, all you just do is up with one rod and one fly box. Like, he finally got it about 2002 when he'd start visiting me when I lived in Wyoming. So it took him that long, you right. know, 14 years to kind of get it. So, yeah, but that was 1988 on Lake Tanicomo in Missouri is when I, when I saw what the hell was going on when I was like 13 years old. Okay. 
So that was really before you even started high school. Yeah, I was... Seventh, eighth grade? Eighth, yeah. That's so, about eighth grade, 13, 14? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah, eighth, seventh, eighth grade. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So you make it through high school. How did you end up in Montana? So Wyoming. Wyoming, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, so... Um, and I started pitter-pattering around with artwork growing in, in high school. Let's back up. So yeah, I obviously, anybody that knows Paul Puckett knows there's not a lot that Paul Puckett doesn't do, um, whether it's writing, artistic paintings, um, drawings. You play guitar, you sing. I would say that your father had a lot to do with the, the musical oh, talent. Oh, yeah, absolutely, for sure. Uh, but I've I've personally always wondered, where did the art come from? Yeah, so my mom was a quilter. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that has some sort of creative percentage into what For I do. For sure. I never cared about it growing up, but now I totally respect it. It's a total art form. Like, when I see quilts now, I'm, like, totally drawn to them. Fifteen years ago, I would have been like, I don't, I don't really care to look at the quilt. Probably because I was so surrounded by it growing up. My mom, and it's, I wish I appreciated it more then, but she was constantly just making little quilts and little wall hangings growing it's, up. It, it's interesting. When I was a probably elementary school age, it had to be, because um, my mom passed away in, when I was in fourth grade, so it had to be prior to fourth grade. Um she had several older friends mm-hmm. that were quilters. Yeah. And, you know, gosh, you're, you're so little back, you know, third, fourth grade, whatever. You know, I can remember the whole quilting thing mm-hmm. going on. And I always equated it with it was people that couldn't afford. So they, like... Gathered all these little scraps of... So they made their own blankets because they couldn't afford to buy blankets? I mean, I don't know that I cognizantly was thinking that, but I remember it was just like, you know, people would give like scraps, you know, old old clothes, old this, and they would cut them into the little squares. But I still actually have a couple of quilts that were made from when I was that age by that lady. And they are truly, when you look back at it, you're Mm -hmm. like, man, this is artful. It's like, I mean, yeah. the pattern, you know, that they put together and all that. But as as the mind of a kid, it was like, mm. wow, well, you know, it's just a bag full of, you know, yeah. and they're cutting it up and then piecing it back together. It didn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. So, but sorry to interrupt it, you. No, no, you're not interrupted at all. It's just crazy to look at uh, the history of quilting and the culture it comes from and all the different patterns and all these patterns. It's like, to me, it's like fly tying. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you take a pattern that, like, there's a lot of different ways you can make a woolly booger, but at the end of the day, it's still a woolly booger. Or a royal wolf, or an attractor, or parachute atoms, how many different parachute atoms. So, it's really cool to see, and I appreciate it now, I didn't really back down. And my mom's at the place in her life where she doesn't quilt anymore, I wish she could, or she, wish she would, but anyway, so I think a lot of it has to do with the fact, that, that fact. And then, my dad's music... Um, like, he was a songwriter, 
after high school, he and a buddy of his moved to California and tried to be songwriters. They got to know Jim Morrison, hanging out with the Doors and all that stuff. Holy shit. Raymond Zarek was one of their friends. Not so much Jim Morrison, but they kind of still hung out in that circle. And then my mom was married to Knox Henderson, which is one of my dad's best friends. And then, you know, my mom always says he forgot he was married quite a bit. Okay. So my, <laughs> my dad ended up marrying. So, but they all still remained friends. It was kind of that... 60s, 70s culture, you know, right, just right. Uh, so my dad, his whole life, always wanted to be a flamenco guitar player and just never really did it until probably when I was early 80s. And it's kind of like same kind of line with trajectory with fly fishing with me, kind of slowly started. I got the seed for it and he just kind of blew up. And at the end of his life, he was a great flamenco guitar player. So that was his passion. Um, and I, that, that's a whole nother thing. I could never touch that. Like it's to be a flamenco guitar player is like, I don't even know how to equate that, but that's a whole nother realm of music. Right. And if you were to go into the Spanish culture and like, if you were to get, if you were to be an American flamenco guitar player, move to Spain and just kind of go into their, their zone, like the, if you're not like perfect and the best that they cut you out and blackball you like they're gonna cut your throat paul like if i were to go over there to spain right now and try to play in front of those spanish gypsies if you're not ready to do it they're gonna cut your throat and kill you and throw you in a trash dumpster like it's kind of like they take if you it were pretty to go, serious if you were to go say you want if you can cast like steve ray jeff right and you're not even close they kill you and throw you in a dumpster like that's the <laughs> equation you know equivalent but he loves spanish culture and flamenco guitar and and uh, I was so surrounded by music my whole life that I never really got into wanting to play guitar because I always had it constantly around me. Right. But when I left for college, like, all of a sudden guitar wasn't around me. I was like, man, I got to learn guitar. You know, so I, I, I kind of picked it up. So that's kind of how that transition happened. It wasn't forced on me ever. But when I wasn't around it anymore, I was like, man, I'm missing something in my life. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of how guitar came into my life. And Dave Matthews. And Dave Matthews. Happened. I heard. And I you're heard, like, wait a second. Yeah. The guy with the guitar gets a lot of the girls. That too. Yeah. So I, I'm sure those equations both kind of con converged. And then I heard uh, that Dave Matthews album, and I had to learn every song on it. And, and what was really cool is when I did, it kind of has a flamenco-y African beat. My dad and I would jam those Dave Matthews songs together. And he'd be playing flamenco shit in the background of me playing uh -huh. Dave Matthews stuff. It was uh, my biggest regret is that we never recorded that stuff. Like it would have been, it would have been so cool to have recorded that stuff. You know, isn't it isn't it crazy the culture and the society that we live in today? Where I mean, we're sitting here at Flood Tide headquarters with a laptop, a couple of microphones, and it's just so easy to put stuff. So down, easy, you yeah, know, for sure. And the time when you and your dad would have been doing stuff together, it would have been a bigger undertaking. Yeah. And whatever media that you recorded it to at this point, you'd be like sending it away somewhere to be digitized yeah. before it disintegrated. And now today you can just make your own CDs, make your own podcasts. Right. So we arrived at guitars, but we yep. were trying to find out about art and yep. how you got. So we, we kind of, took a turn at quilting and ended up at guitar. So let's back it up and talk about Paul's 
formative years getting started <laughs> yeah. with the artistic endeavors. Yeah, I don't think it was anything different from your formative years. I mean, at some point, every kid comes home with an art project. Sure. What, through like maybe fifth grade, maybe, or sixth grade? You know, I took art in all the way through high school. I mean, like I had art class. Yeah, everyone has to have like an art class. You yeah. have to have an art class, right? But I guess it's... But every kid is artsy. Like, every kid wants to draw it's with p- crayons. I mean, there's not a refrigerator in America that doesn't have... Exactly. ...a drawing on it or a crayon or, you know... Yeah. And parents save that stuff because yeah. it's like, you know, look how brilliant, how beautiful my child can create this stuff. Mm-hmm. And some kids stick with it. Others don't. I think it happens about six grade. I've thought about this a lot. Okay. I'm like, at what at what point in my life was I different from another kid that liked baseball and liked guy stuff, but I still wanted to create stuff on paper when that, I think it was like sixth or seventh grade if I had to, if I had to figure it out. Because, you always had to have art class growing up. You always still did it. But at what point was I still wanting to draw on things mm-hmm. when other people weren't? They were just being made to because they were having to be in art class. It was probably sixth or seventh grade. My cousins and I would always, like, recreate comics. And then I think building, building like, model airplanes and model cars with my dad all the time, which we would do all the time, I think that set a precedent for me wanting to recreate things. Right. Like I'm trying to replicate something. Sure. So I think that's where that kind of started. You know, the the model aspect of it. When you put together, did, were you doing like the uh, Ravel models? Yeah. Like uh-huh. the plastic models that you glue together? Yep. The like painting, with... all the details, okay. all the shit. In there. So there's a big difference between one kid and the next kid and how they put those models together. Some kids, it's the process. They put it together. There it is. They might, and remember those decals were like the water decals. Oh, yeah. You soak them in the water and you slip it off. Yep. And I never did a lot of cars, but I did a lot of airplanes. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad was a pilot. I grew up around aviation, so like airplanes were my jam. I was obsessive, compulsive about painting them, mm-hmm. painting them realistically. Yeah. Like, the color of the model wasn't good enough. It had to be painted. Yeah. And then the decals had to go on, and they had to be just right. And the insides. Even though you wouldn't see the insides, like, if that damn interior seat wasn't painted perfectly, even though you would never see it. Right. It's going to bother you. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's where that... That whole process got instilled with me. I think the process of creating something, mm-hmm. and um, and I also thought I was going to be an automob like a car designer was okay. the first thing in my life where I thought I was going to be creating something. So I would get like tracing paper and like lay the chassis out. Second second round of tracing paper would be like drawing the seats and. So I had this whole process where I was doing this all the time until my dad said, Paul, well, you're not that good in math. So <laughs> you got to be a damn engineer. Pretty, You have to be pretty much be a scientist to be able to design cars, which is true. Like, you can't, you can be creative, but you also have to be good with, like, 
formulas and science and math. I was like, all right, I'll just be a graphic designer then. Because at that point, I knew someday in my world, I wanted to be doing art for a living. Okay. So. Do you feel like your mom and dad supported your art? Or did you have a a teacher that Uh, really was the catalyst that said, damn, Paul, you you got some... A little bit of both. You got some heart, some skill. You know, sometimes I dabble. And, you know, there's still that little artsy kid inside of me where, you know, I'm going to do something. And, you know, I, I do a few things, then maybe I don't stick with it because it didn't turn out as good as I'd hoped it was going to. But I know that, like, the, the reason for the question of, you know, was there a teacher? Was there an art teacher? It's almost like certain students get capture the attention yeah. of the art teacher, and they're like, Paul, Paul's got it. I'm going to yeah. cultivate that. Where Larry, I mean, you're doing okay, but it's just never going to be quite, <laughs> you know. And Until the experimental drugs start taking over. That's right. <laughs> No, uh, a little bit of that, for sure. Probably mainly my parents, though. Okay. But in high school, I had a art three and four, which is your junior, senior year. Was uh, Dr. Pierce was her name. And she basically let me every freaking project that was assigned was a fishing-based project. Okay. And normally, that would not be... Normally, that wouldn't fly. Normally they would say you need to get your mind, you need to experiment more. But she totally honed in on me doing anything I wanted. And in that art class, I remember though, I was not the the best in the class. Like there's, there was clearly a definition between a girl named Rachel Rucker who I had a big crush on. Rachel Rucker. And would you? She, what? Her? Yeah. Yeah. She was an she was like, and Nell Patasnik, those girls were amazing artists, tons better than me. But, and I think today I don't think they. What's funny is, I think Rachel's a doctor, and Nell I, I don't remember. Anyway, the point is, they're not artists today, but right. they were the best artists in that at the time. Class. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. And what's also funny is in art three and four, Rick Wittenbreaker, Haller Brothers, okay. marketing director. Uh huh. One of my good buddies, he was in my art classes. That's what Oh, no shit. Yeah, so he was always pretty artsy as well. I don't know if you ever met Rick. I'm not, he has, like, the red beard, always at the Haller booth, the shows. Yeah, He's their I, main have. Marketing guy. I have. I yep. have, So he uh, he and I grew up together. So uh, I had no idea. Yeah, so we were in art classes Hold on, let's together. say it together. Yeah. Small fucking world. Yeah, right? I know, exactly. So, uh, so yeah, um Art class in high school, they always let me do. And I remember walking into the baseball locker room because I played baseball. I was I would always have my art class, my art project with me, and everyone would give me a little hell. But then they'd see that I'm drawing some sort of cool fishing piece, you know. And so yeah, it all worked out, man. I was good. At, I was good at baseball and art in high school. So, so how much of uh, that kind of old artwork is still out there? It's it's I, I still have Has it. Has it been all, preserved? Yeah, yeah. It's all in storage in Tyler, Texas. Cool. Yeah, so it'd be fun to dive through that some of that stuff someday. Like I got this uh kind of ripping like acidy painting of like Jimi Hendrix 
with all these weird layers of colors and on the fretboard of the guitar, I like got real paper clips and cut them and made them look like frets. Kind of, that's probably one of my favorite old things I ever. Like did. a little mixed media project. Yeah, a little painting of Hendrix ripping it, and I got one of Steve Ray Vaughan ripping it, and uh, then everything else is pretty much fish. And some of it's pretty bad. Like I remember when I did it, I was like, "Man, this is great." Well, you know, but that's that's the whole it's progression. Yeah, yeah, it's a timeline. Yeah. Perfect. And yeah. and you know, I think it takes and and God, if there's anybody that listens to this and and can get it, you have somebody. Uh, you know, let's let's talk about just grades in general. Okay, you've already said it before. Your dad said, Paul. You're not going to do so well with the car designing because you're not good at math. Yeah, he's being um, realistic. Yeah, you know? but you know, were you good at in history class or civics class or you know? You know, I could have been good, Larry. I just wasn't that good of a student, honestly. Uh, uh, I, I just thought I was terrible. What at was studying. your What was your best class? Oh man! Um, aside from art, yeah. Aside from art, uh, I mean, probably history. And that's probably because it interested you. Yeah, yeah, like Texas history and American history. I mean, and that—that's kind of the point that I want to make is like, and and I want to find out if you agree. Is a lot of times people don't realize, and maybe if they're more cognizant of it, maybe if they support the things that you see that a person actually enjoys and likes, and yeah. foster that and push it forward, you're going to pay them a debt of gratitude oh, yeah. forward that, that you'll Instead never know. Instead of forcing upon something that they, right. you think they should be doing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, to, to hear that your art teacher was like, Paul's got pretty good, you know, instinct here, and to keep him focused, yeah, it's not normal to do this, but Sure, Paul. Another fish painting would be great. Another yeah. fish drawing would be great. Oh, you want to do fish and charcoal? That sounds fantastic. Yeah. And she cultivated where you end up, right? Yeah, totally. It was a positive vibe. And just because I get an art degree doesn't mean that person's going to be an artist. They might end up follow, following it. Some, when you get out of college... So did you get an art degree? Yeah, I did. Okay. So. I ended up getting a graphic design minor because I was not good at the average. So I went to North Texas, and it was a really good graphic design program, and they called it advertising design back then. But you had to be equally good in, like, the concept of coming up with an ad campaign. Okay. And you had to be good at the illustration graphic part of it. And I was I was good at the illustration graphic part of it, coming up with logos, letterheads, Everything's very, back in the day, was like letterhead-driven. Like, if you were good at coming up with a concept of a an envelope and a letterhead and a business card, right? that meant you knew what you were doing, <laughs> which seems today so trivial. Yes. Because you can just get on U-printing and create a business card and a letterhead and an envelope. In, like, five yeah. minutes. So And have 500 but Back then, them. that's how they judged you. So I was good at that side of it, but I was not good at creating, like, a five- part billboard campaign you had to be good at both of those and I was not good at that and I'm still not really that good at, at that so I ended up they were like Paul we're, ne- we're gonna need you to minor in this so I minored it and then finally graduated with sociology somehow finally when I say six and a half years later so I, I majored in college that's really what I majored in hey and you know what you're better off for it probably oh yeah you I mean, know I think you know what and a lot of people would agree with me I think the main thing you learn in college is how to deal with people 
and you got the little paper thing that says you finished. Uh, you know, I I've always said it's stick to itiveness. They want to see you finish a project, right? You you, yeah. you stuck it out. You got that piece of paper. Yep. Doesn't say that you're the next Albert Einstein. You're not the most no. brilliant person on the planet because there's a whole lot of other people that got that piece of paper too. Yeah. Uh, anything from sociology to sports management to whatever. Um, yep. It just means you checked all the boxes. Yeah. And the guy that didn't go to college could probably equally create that project. But oh. the fact that that paper says they did, it's sad but true, but that's what makes a difference these days. It does. Yeah. And not as much as it did 30 years ago. Today, I've got a couple of friends that never went to college that are successful in what they're doing, but it's harder to do without that, but not as hard as it was 15, 20, 30 years ago. Sure. But, but yeah, it's funny how that little piece of paper makes a big difference. So you did six years at North Texas. Mm-hmm. Is uh, summers uh, off? Did you? A little bit of both. I did summer, some summer school. Like if I dropped a class or failed a class, I found myself <laughs> in summer school. Right. And then uh, so I worked at a fly shop in Dallas from – they opened up in 94, West Bank Anglers. They were an extension of the West Bank Anglers in Jackson, Wyoming. Okay. Um, so my dad heard, got word that a Highland Park graduate was opening up a fly shop in Dallas. And this is in 1994. This is like when I was so into it, like tying flies. All my, I was trying to be an artist. I didn't know what I was doing with it. I was sending, I was already sending artwork to magazines, trying to get some stuff. I mean, looking back on it, like the stuff I was sending was... Ridiculous. So uh, some of it wasn't terrible. But uh, so I got a hold of this guy, and David Coleman is his name, and he was the one opening up the West Bank Anglers in Dallas. And uh, I was like, hey, I'm not trying to get a job. I just want to see if I can show my artwork in your store. So he's like, all right, we'd love to see your artwork. Come by. So I did. I showed him some, like, five or six art pieces that I had done, and I was, like, nine, uh, I was 20 at the time, maybe. Okay. And – uh so they're like, yeah, we, yeah, this is great. And then they call me three days later. We're like, hey, we're kind of on a tight schedule right now. Would you be able to maybe work part time to get the shop open? And at the time, I was working at this other store called Dallas Sports, and I was the fly fishing fishing guy okay. at that store. I was like, yeah, Paul Puckett, yeah, fly fishing manager. Yeah, well, trying to be thinking. I didn't, you know, I was Texas going, I'm Sports, going to college, right? Summer. I was going to Brookhaven College for the summer. And I was about to start at North Texas in the fall. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. So I quit that job to work part-time because I'd much rather be working at the fly shop. But right. I was like 19, you know. Like if a 19-year-old were to walk in here today, like, you know how young a 19-year-old? Like, how old is Wyatt? <laughs> Wyatt's 14. So, I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like I- I'm still amazed they hired me. Like, this esteemed, like, just real nice fly shop in Dallas and – and so they hired me just to work part-time to get the store open. And then when the store would be open, I would not be working there anymore. That was the plan. Okay. But I kind of, like, worked my ass off, and I did everything. I was loving it. I was so into it. They were like, we have to hire this kid. Well, dude, they knew you were a go-getter because you called them and you said, hey, I'm not looking for a job. I want to put my product, my artwork yeah. in there. And they're like, I just want to be part of it. Wait a second. Yeah. This kid's kind of got his head on right. Yeah. So, okay, so you get hired on. So they were like, we want to hire you for the opening, and we want you to work here all summer. 
So next thing I knew, I had a big brother. Like, I, I don't have any brothers and sisters, but David Coleman, I kind of looked up to him. Like, at the time, he was probably, if I was 19, he was probably 28, 29, 30. And his wife was a couple years younger, probably 27, 28. And they were really good business people, smart people. And next thing I knew, I found myself, like, after work, going out to dinner with him and, like, really creating a relationship with him. And today, they're two of my best friends in the world. Like, if it wasn't for them, I don't know where I'd be today, honestly. That's amazing. He was the best man at my wedding. To me, he's a big brother, you know, but a really good friend. And uh, so they gave me the confidence to be in this industry and to, as a 19-year-old kid, you know, wearing T-shirt, khakis, and red wing boots, I was, like in where I wanted to be and since then I've been in this fly fishing industry for the next 25 years so so that that's was kinda where it started. that was what in what? 1994 94 yep okay so yeah that's 25 years yeah wow so I stopped working at a fly shop three years ago so I worked fly shops for 22 years so all through college I worked there in the summers and weekends and you know that's where I got all my fly shop and knowledge if you will. Right. So when did you find yourself working out West? Yeah. So West Bank Anglers. So getting to know the people out West that own the company, mm-hmm. cause they'd come in once or twice a year, Steve and Kim Valitas and Reynolds Pomeroy. So fast forward to 1999, you know, six years later, I was like, Hey, I want to come out to Wyoming and guide. And they're like, all right, well, we suggest you either do one of two things: go to a guide school, guide school, or just is come. that really a thing? I always thought it was a joke. It to me, it's a joke. Okay, now looking back on it, now at the time I didn't know, right? Or you come work in the shop for a summer, mm-hmm. get to know the guides. Uh huh. So they gave me these two options. I was like, you know, I'd much rather just work in the shop and meet the guides and learn it on my own. I, I don't. I'm not going to pay three grand to come out for two weeks and. Go to guide school. Right. Which they still do these days. I'm not saying it doesn't have its its positive attributes, but the best thing you can do is get to know three or four guides and you're gonna get to know them because what's gonna happen is they're gonna have they're gonna have people that cancel on them. And the first thing they're gonna do is call the shop owner and say, What what shop staff is off today? And they're gonna call you, say, Do you wanna learn how to row a boat? Because I wanna go fishing. Right. And that happened all summer long. So at the end of three months, I've got 20 days on the water with guides teaching me, mm-hmm. and that's guide school. Yeah. And it's better than guide school. It's one-on-one. You're, they're yelling at you, talk, telling you you're a piece of shit if you, like, hit that log again. You know, like, you're really learning. Right. And at the end of the day, you're, in the end of the day, you're having a beer with them. You're, the next thing you know, you're friends with four or, four, four or five guides. And to, to this day, I'm still friends with them, like – like they're looking at me as, shop, as a shop rat, but they they still respect me, and you know. Yeah, but down the road, when it came time that Paul wanted to move and do some guiding, mm-hmm. they know you. Yeah, and they would. They're going to vouch for you. Totally vouch for you. Yeah, and and they're not going to. You know, they know you've put in your time. You're not some new kid wet behind the ears straight out of guide school. Yeah, walking into a shop going, "Hey, I just graduated guide school. Give me a job." No. <laughs> I would not. I would say, no, you're going to work in the shop for a summer. Right. If I owned a shop out out west and Robbie Johnson walked in and said, hey, I just graduated guide school. I need a job. I'd be like, well, then work in the shop for the summer. So where in Wyoming were you? In Jackson. In Jackson. Jackson Hole. Yeah. Okay. 
at the West Bank, and I was out there for four years. Okay. And so it came time, do you want to be a guide? Hell yes. And then that whole summer, I learned real quick, I did not want to be a guide. Because what I found out is I never get to go fishing. I'm working four days in a, in a shop, three days off. I'm fishing almost half the week. Three days, I get to go fishing every week. They're salty. They're assholes. They're pissed off at all times. And I, I did not want to be that. So I learned. So what I learned in the summer was how to be a guide and not to be a guide. And at the end of that summer, I was like, I, I don't want to be a guide. So the next three summers after that, I just kept working in the shops and fishing three days a week. It so, was awesome. So I believe, man, I don't remember where we were when you told me this story. It may have been at the Fish Hawk. You had the opportunity. Do you need another cold beer? Yeah, I'll take another cold beer. Okay. You want to ask the question while I'm walking to the fridge? Yeah, yeah. So um, I know you were out west, so I'm going to assume it was in Jackson Hole, and you were working at the shop, and on your days off, you had decided that uh, it'd be really swell if you could float and do a little fishing, but you did not have a drift boat. But there was a drift boat that was available, quote unquote. Yeah. Tell me that story again. This is a good story. So uh, so after the few times guides would find out who's off, I took them out, got a little got a little rowing experience. Like on the Snake River, I'm not going to say it's that hard, but it can be difficult. It's, it's a great river to learn how to row on because you got a lot of snaky turns. I hate to say that word, but it's true. Everything changes every winter in that river. You never know what's going to be around the next bend compared to last year. So it's a great river to learn on. And uh, so after three or four times going out on the gu- with guys, I got pretty confident. And behind West Bank Anglers, there was this blue drift boat called a slide ride. Just sitting there. Like took on snow all winter. Like not covered, just... Just in the elements. Someone has left this fucking boat. Right. I can say F words, right? Oh, absolutely. This boat has been left to rot, and it was very clear. So Kim, who uh, had ownership in West Bank, Kim Valitas, lover to death, great person, and uh, and my buddy Chad, he and I overlapped having two two days off together. So I was like, man, what's the deal with that? freaking slider right back there. So I asked Kim, I go, what's what's going on with that boat back there? She goes, oh, that's Greg Vincent's boat. I'm like, well, who the fuck's Greg Vincent? She goes, oh, well, he he actually, he's from Wales, but he, he uh, lives in the Bahamas now. And I've come to know him since. But at the time, <laughs> you know, at the time, I, who the hell is, who cares? He lives in the Bahamas. What's to do with this boat? She goes, well, you can use it. I mean, he didn't pay me anything to store it here. Uh, you ask me, it might as well be my boat, you know? So Chad and I look at each other, so we can use it? And she goes, yeah, you can use it. So go buy a tow hitch for my Jeep Cherokee, and next thing you know, I've got a damn, I've got a fucking drift boat. That's you know? right. This is probably mid-July, you know? I've been been there about two months, and now I've got a drift boat. So we pull that thing, and the damn thing, you couldn't even move, it's like almost like the thing had been there for four years. You couldn't move the thing, you know, it's like set in, it's permanent. 
So we use it and when it comes around and we just keep it where we lived in our apartment because to us this damn thing is ours now. Now all these guys at West Bank are friends with Greg still. So word started traveling a little bit, but we had been buddies with the guys. It's not, it's not, it's not like they were ratting us out. Right. You know, just may have come up in conversation. Emails, or whatever, yeah. Right. Has my boat, mate? You know, oh, I think some kids are using it, whatever. So come October, I've winterized that thing. I put the 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 tarp the tarp on it late October, early November. And I get this call at the shop like in mid December. Actually, Kim transferred the call to me. <laughs> hey, mate. Yeah, this is Paul. He goes, Hey, had you been using my boat? I'm like, I'm sorry. And he's like. Yeah, this is Greg Vincent in the Bahamas. How'd you been using my boat? I'm like, yeah, well, Kim said I could, man. I'm, t- I'm taking care of it, and it's all good. He goes, all right, well, I'm going to go ahead and assume you've used it about 100 days and go ahead and bill you for it. I'm like, well, that's between you and Kim, man. I don't, I'm not doing this. Like, I was told I could use it. Sorry, it's a problem. He goes, all right, I'm going to go ahead and send you an invoice for about $3,000 for using it all summer. So he goes, all right, transfer me back to Kim. I'm like, not quite shaken, but I'm like, what the fuck? Right. This is bullshit. So they get off the phone, and Kim's like, I don't know, Paul. You have been using it. And, like, she was in on the joke. So I guess it was a joke at this point. So it diffused. Nothing ever happened. And a year later, I did the same thing. He called me. He goes, hey, mate, you never called me. You never sent me a check for that fucking boat. You've been using them on all, all year. Two years, you at least owe me $5,000 now. Anyway, it ended up never happening, and now that Greg and I are buddies about two years ago, I was like, do you remember calling me? I'm the kid that you, like, were giving me shit about using your boat. He goes, brother, I never, I don't even remember that, man. He didn't remember it. Like, so it was just, they were just fucking So they, me. like, put him up to it. Yeah, and that boat's still sitting behind West Bank. Like, so, he never sold it. He never got rid of it. It's still just, like, part of the... The, the world in Jackson just being unused or being used by kids like me. But he had you going. Oh, yeah. I thought for sure. Like, who the fuck? The fuck? I'm going to have to pay this guy three grand now, Kim? No, I'm not paying this guy $3,000. He coming for you. <laughs> so watch out for Greg Vincent's from Wales. He's uh, quite the boat rental guy, operator. Yeah, he's such a good dude, though. Like, knowing him now, like, Clearly, he's messing with me. Like, he would never care. that. Right. He'd probably actually be rather happy that someone's actually using the boat. And since then, I'm sure he sold the thing. But, yeah, it's just a big bathtub of a slide ride. It's like the equivalent of, like, an old Hughes. Okay. I mean, I love Hughes's, but I'm so, but, yeah, just a big old bathtub. So, you uh, had your time out west and... Four good years. Four good years, the... Good, good run. Oh yeah, and uh, you wrap up college. Where are you off to next? Well, wrapped up college, then Wyoming for four years. Okay, so it was yeah. college, then Wyoming. Yeah, so we've okay. wasted ten years of our life at this point. We haven't wasted anything. <laughs> we've built a foundation. That's right. So uh, I met a girl out there, and moved to Atlanta with her. And so that's how I got to Atlanta. Now, I was in the mindset of moving to Denver at this point. Because at this point in my life, I want to stay out west. I love living out west. But I, I felt at this point I needed to get the job. You know, the the quote-unquote job that your parents are like, Paul, no, that's great. I'm glad you had fun out west. But 
We're spending a lot of money for this college, you know. Like, you need to figure out what the hell you're going to do. You're and all, gonna... all you've done is managed yeah. to ra- r- rack up about $6,000 in boat rental fees but, that yeah. you're not going to be able to pay because exactly. you're not using your damn exactly. degree. What's funny, though, is when I moved to Wyoming, my dad couldn't believe it. It's like, what the hell? You're moving to damn Wyoming? And then when he went out there and visited me three times a year. He's like, I fucking love it. When I left for a girl, he was like, now, pal. Are you sure that you want to leave Jackson for a piece of P, like P-U-S-S-Y? Like, you got to make sure you're clear on this, because this is a pretty damn amazing place. I was like, yeah, Dad, um, I was going to leave anyway. I was going to move to Denver. Why not Atlanta? Which, to a lot of people, doesn't make sense, but did a little research. Turns out Atlanta's a pretty cool fishing town. Right. You got and it really hooch. is. Yeah, I mean... I had a blast in you Atlanta. Got Helen and Blue Ridge, yeah. not too far away. An hour away. and a half north, you're in the mountains. Yeah. Three and a half hours southeast, you're on the coast. Five hours from Charleston, you get the Flint River. It's a really cool place if you like fishing, sure. honestly. And I love the cultural part of Atlanta. I love the history of it. I'd never lived in the south before. I always thought Texas was the south until I moved there. Like, no, no, no. Texas is not the South. Not at all. Well, I'd have thought that my whole life. Right. Until I moved to the South. Like, quickly to let you know, Texas is its own little thing over there. The Republic. Yeah. So, but yeah, Atlanta was great. I loved it. And I started visiting Charleston a lot. So, when I moved to to Atlanta, I still had this whole, I need to get a job. That was the, now my parents weren't really telling me that, but it's what I thought needed to happen. I need to figure out this career thing. Right. What the hell am I going to do? So I always wanted to be in radio, too. I love radio. I thought I wanted to be in radio, so I got a job in radio advertising because I just thought one day that I might be on that radio, like my voice, you know. And uh, that clearly didn't happen. About a year and a half after that, I went to Jackson to visit some friends and go skiing. And I was like, why? I'm out there on the mountain. It kind of, I don't really remember the moment, but it's like, why am I sitting behind a desk in a cubicle and I could be trying this? Artwork thing, because I'm still doing art. Mm-hmm. I'm doing little projects, not a whole lot, not not a whole lot. It's like screw this. I'm gonna get back to Atlanta, try to get a job at the fish hawk part time, and then start painting a lot more. And that's what I did. I, I got there, went to the fish hawk, and said, "Hey, I would love to get a part time job here." And Gary's like, "Well, we don't have any jobs for you." A week later, one of the guys that's been there the longest, the Sarge. Decided he was going to go from full-time to part-time, so they needed a part-time guy. Like This is like five days later, I get a phone call. Hey, hey, man, uh, you came in here. We need, we do need a part-time. I was like, perfect. I quit my office job at Cats Radio and then decided I was going to give this thing 10 years. Like, where would I be after 10 years? Like, uh, 10. Damn, you got, you've got a, a time horizon. Was, so I, I knew I had to give it 10 years. Okay. Because at year eight... It might be shitty. And then all of a sudden, at year nine, it might be boom. You know, because art takes a long time. Sure. And in year five, I was feeling good about it. And then um, started doing all the silly little, like, you know, Walter holding a trout, and all these silly little drawings of, you know, Scarface dude holding a brown trout and all these kind of pop culture things. And that's kind of what made my trajectory go a little bit quicker doing those drawings. And then drawing on cliff boxes. All these silly little things that have kind of added up. Right. And that's kind of where I was at like year five, probably. That was probably like 2009 or 10. 
probably. Yeah. That one I did probably your cliff box with the airplane on it. Yeah. The... Well, you did a cliff box for me prior to that too. Okay. Um, I was doing the uh, rep thing on the part time. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. For uh, a rod company. Yeah. And we were going to be going to, was it the uh, Smoky Mountain uh, Fly Fishing Festival uh, in Townsend, Tennessee? Mm -hmm. And I knew that you were doing Cliff's Box uh, artwork because we really, I I think I saw it for the first time probably on the Drake message board. Okay. Um, Yeah, I probably posted a couple of things and I probably got roasted for it. Um, you can't show your stuff on here. Yeah, probably. That belongs <laughs> in the fucking basement. <laughs> um, and so I was in Atlanta, or I was going to be passing through Atlanta, and I stopped by the Fishhawk because we had messaged each other on the Drake, mm-hmm. and you're like, yeah, I'll be working, stop by and say hi. That's yeah. the first time you and I met in person. Um, and I talked to you about doing a, a box for that show that I was going to be going to okay. so that we could raffle it off. Okay. Um, do you remember what we did on it? I don't remember. Uh, for Smoky Mountains, you did a, a, a trout or a something, brook trout. Okay. Cause like Smoky Mountain National Park, brook trout restoration, the whole thing. Okay. Um, and cool. that's what you did. Well, if what's funny is I'll go back in time a little bit. Okay. Um, when I worked at the, at the West Bank Anglers in Dallas, the first thing I started doing commercially as what we would call an artist was the whole uh, catch and release paintings. Okay. So I started selling those to customers in Dallas. They'd bring like a photo of a 24-inch brown trout, and I would paint that uh, to the exact dimensions it was. And So that's the first thing I started doing to be able to call myself uh, a commercially viable artist, if you will. Right. And I've got photos of some of those paintings I did back then, and... That's right where I finally started seeing my, my artwork kind of blossoming a little bit, doing those paintings for people. Well, you, your art turned into a sustainable potential living. Yeah, like at I, that I would point. get checks for, at the time, $250, $300 for doing a painting. Yeah. I mean, like, this is pretty cool. I can take my girlfriend out tonight. Right. Um, and then the so four. So let, let, me, let me interrupt yeah. you. Because you, you, you kind of touched on something. I write sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been published in the Drake, the Fly Fish Journal once. And it's cool. Because, number one, you like to think that the words that are floating around in this big old empty cranium of mine end up on, on paper. Yes, yeah, permanent. And, and it's, it's there. printed. Yeah. And it's distributed. People have subscriptions. They buy it at the fucking bookstore. Yeah, it's out there. It's out there. And the the really cool fucking thing is one day you get a package in the mail, and it's a copy of the fucking magazine Yeah, with a check and a thank you Yeah, from the publisher. Yeah. And it's like, wow, holy shit, this is really cool. And there's a lot of people that say, oh, yeah, I'm a writer. It's like, oh, you are. You know, have you been published? Well, yeah, on such and such website. And it's like, well, who's gonna? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Same thing with art. There's tons of people that have a certain acumen to be able to put pen to paper and create an image. Is it the same thing in the art world where it's like, well, until or unless you're starting to exchange your artwork for compensation, is that like the measure of? I'm starting to make it. 
Yeah. Uh, I can go back to like 1996. I feel like that's right when I started doing paintings for people. Mm-hmm. And every painting would be a little bit much, a little bit much better. Uh-huh. And I had a hard time parting with those paintings oh, because wow. I was seeing these paintings in front of me, thinking to myself, "I may never do anything this good again," and I'm about to give give this to someone for three hundred dollars. Like I'd almost rather not do that. Right. But by the tenth time. By the tenth time someone would give me money for that painting, and every painting would get that much better, I started feeling confident in myself. But that took a long time to get used to doing a painting, even even if it would have been for a thousand dollars at the time. Right. Well, now like three hundred dollars, nineteen ninety six today is probably like a couple grand. I don't. I'm just trying to sure spitball that. But it was really hard to just give someone a painting, even though they were giving me money. Right. Like, to me, money didn't matter then because I. Part-time job. My parents were still kind of helping me, so it was really weird to get used to that, in 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 that kind of way of thinking that you're you're talking about. Uh, but I feel like I was going somewhere else with that. But the point is, it was, it took me a while to get used to that taking conversation for a painting. Now, that, but at what point did you? Start realizing, and probably this is when you're. Um, now you're in Atlanta. Yeah, it probably um, wasn't until then. And and I think in Atlanta um, was the first time that some of your artwork ended up on apparel. It was the, the shirt at the shop. Yeah, yeah, at the shop. Exactly, and they still sell that damn shirt. I know. It's great. Like, Gary, Gary, if you're there, let's, let's fucking drop that shirt or take my name off it. I mean, it, it's great, but like that's like one of their biggest selling shirts, and it's like, man, you got you got to let's redo it. But uh, so shirts, yes, Fishhawk, probably nineteen ninety six, maybe, and no, no, two thousand six. Sorry, yeah. And then the first time I think I had an illustration in a magazine it was an American Angler, a little striper, little illustration that was from the letter letter from the editor. It wasn't even like a part of like an editorial piece. It was like he had gone striper fishing and like, I forget, I think James Bice was still doing some work for American Angler at the time. Okay. And he worked the fish hawk. Uh-huh. So he's like, hey, I think so-and-so's doing a piece on striper fishing. Got to boot that and put it in the magazine. You get $100. I was like, so to see, like you're saying, like someone all over the world might see this. Sure. And it says Paul Puckett under that. It was pretty cool. And that there's nothing that nothing is. So I remember when you when you were starting to do like the Pacino and the and Walter and and Clint Eastwood and and Terminator, uh, or not Terminator. Um, uh yeah yeah. Uh, old Western or. Uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah. Anyway, I, I, yeah, you're yeah. doing those illustrations. I remember when that all started happening. Yeah. And like, it was like on Facebook, and it wasn't even like it was mainly on Facebook. When I put that stuff on Facebook, it just like skyrocketed. So you were also probably painting at the time, mm-hmm. um, and and you were saying like the the illustrations, the pop art, pop culture stuff was around 2009 ish. If I had to guess, yeah. I yeah. think there's some 07s. There's the dates on there. 07, 08, 09. When did you start doing, like, um, 
the actual art shows with paintings that you were taking and, and, and going for the weekend. Uh, yeah. You do one in what, Thomasville? So that was the first one. Okay. In Thomasville, Plantation Wildlife. And when was that? Probably 2009 or 2010. Okay. And maybe even earlier. I remember thinking, okay, I need to start getting into this stuff. I need to start. All my favorite artists are in these shows. And I've been to them a couple of times. I've gone to see them. And I was like, man, it's probably going to take me three or four years to finally get in them. So I'm just going to enroll. It's like, I think it was like 2008 or 09. In the first year in Thomasville, I was accepted. I was like, wait a second. So this is something I'm not familiar with. So you say you have to be, you have to enroll. And like, so there's like a committee that says, You're not ready, kid, or yeah, we love your work. Come on in. Yeah. Okay, I didn't realize that. That's how that. Seawee's done. Okay. If you're a first entry into Seawee or Plantation. Uh-huh. Now, back in the day, I remember sending in slides in like 08 oh, wow. or 09. <laughs> I, had to, I had to go get slides made of my artwork. So I got accepted, and I was like, I wasn't ready for it. Like, I was still like. You thought you were just like. Doing the application process, yeah. so they're like, "Oh yeah, we saw this name last year." Yes, exactly. Okay. I, thought, I thought it would take three or four years. Paying some dues. Well, I got accepted, and, and I was not ready for that. And looking back on it, I'm not going to say I don't regret it, but I probably should have bowed out and kind of honed my craft a little bit more. Okay. Because I went, and I was by far the worst artist at that show. It was bad. Like it was. I was trying to do some oil stuff, which I shouldn't have been doing yet. I was, I, I probably should have done more watercolors. I'm next to C.D. Clark, you know, one of my favorite artists. I'm next to all these people, and I. But I. But the, at the end of the day, I learned. I learned a thousand fold that weekend. Like so, I don't regret doing it. I'm glad I did it because I learned so much. Did you sell anything that no, first year? No, I don't think I sold a single thing. Okay, and that's not saying much because even today I don't really sell a lot of those shows. Because it's all hunting, birds, and I'm the fishing guy there. Sell a few things here and there. It's worth going because it's a great show to be in. Mm-hmm. Like I've met some of my heroes, like Eldridge Hardy. Like I met him at that show six years ago, five or six years ago. It's a great show to be in, but it's not the forte for fishing art. And I think that's why they have me there is because it breaks it up a little okay. bit. It's like, yeah, we have a couple of fishing arts. Right. You know, because everything else is quail, deer, ducks. It's an amazing show to be in. I can't do it this year. I was supposed to be in it, but I had to bow out. But hopefully next year I'll be back in it. But it's a great show to be in, but that first year was rough. Like, looking back at my paintings, like, I remember C.D. Clark coming over to my art, and I'm like, I need you to tell me, like, straight up what I can prove on. He's like, you know, you got some good, okay things going here, like, in there. And he was just like... Like, I feel for the guy, because I'm sure he didn't want to, like, totally crush me. You right. Know? But uh, but since then, we've become buddies, and, like, some of my... It's it's an amazing thing to be able to call some of these artists that have always been my idols, like, friends now. Right. It's pretty cool. I, I would imagine it's it would be. It's the same thing in the fishing industry. Sure. You see your lefty craze and your foot palettes, and you become, you know, kind of associates with these people. You're kind of on their, their same wavelength. It's the same way in artwork. You see these guys at the art shows, and you have something in common, and you kind of naturally become buddies with them. Right. So. So when you are um, – you want to take a break? Yeah. All right, let's take a break. Is this a natural time to do that? Yeah, let's go ahead and uh, – 
We're going to take a quick break because my beer's empty. Paul's Mm -hmm. beer's not empty, but he needs to (laughs) empty something else. And that's that's normal for us. So uh, it's got to go somewhere. We're going to take a little break and we will be right back. So uh, I got a big fat lipper in, Paul's all refreshed, and we're going to get right back after it. So you are still in Atlanta, I believe, when you started doing the art shows. Yep. And things are going well in Atlanta. Still working part-time at the Hawk. Yep, yep. Um, still still painting, doing a lot of paintings, but I'm starting to kind of get known more for these pop art things. Which was fun, which was which was great, and that kind of led me into starting this flood tide deal. And uh, I was starting to fish a lot at the Georgia coast. The girl I was married to had a place on Cumberland Island. Okay. Which is an amazing place. It's like having a house in Yellowstone National Park, Cumberland Island National Seashore. And her dad was a lawyer, and her dad was the one that helped write the bill to make it uh, a national park. Oh, wow. So, in return for all this work that they did for the, the Carnegie's, as he says, they uh, gave him a piece of land right on the marsh, built a house on it. So, we had a great... So, that's where I fell in love with saltwater fishing. I never planned on it happening. Right. But here I was going to Cumberland Island five or six times a year. In the backyard, there's sheep's head and redfish tailing. Oh, wow. And I'm like, that's interesting. In Cumberland Island, aren't there like wild horses there yeah. too? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And we had rain in this place, you know, four wheelers and mopeds and the beach is a mile down the road. They're friends with the Carnegie's, the, the, I forget the name of the family that owned Coca-Cola, but like here I am with this family that this prestigious, like, you know, it was, it was fun. We had a good time and, uh, that ended up, you know, not working out. Okay. And here I am in Atlanta, Georgia, loving redfish. And all I could think about was how do I get on the coast in the next two months to find tailing redfish? Looking at tides, all I can think of are these, these tailing reds, and I start just drawing nothing but tailing reds. 
And I'm like, well, I'm getting some business. I'm doing art for Patagonia, Yeti, Sims, all these other companies, True Flies. I'm like, well, the hell, if they want my if they want my art, why don't I just start my own deal? And I had the Redfish logo kind of in my head, so I created a Redfish logo. I always was going on the coast for flood tides. Mm-hmm. So I called it Flood Tide. That's how that all happened. And I'm living in Atlanta. Well, how the hell can you have an apparel-based saltwater company living in Atlanta, you know? So the idea was to eventually get to Charleston or somewhere on the coast. And Will Abbott, my, my roommate at the time, Trey Miller, was really good friends with Will. I was like, well, you know, Will kind of has some interest in maybe helping you out with this thing. So that's where Will and I came together. Okay. So that's that was my yeah. next question. He had the $1,000 that I didn't have to just get 200 T-shirts and 200 hats. Okay. Honestly, that's how it started. Will gives me a check. Hey, homie, how much you need? Let's get 200 shirts and 200 hats and just go to the Sweetwater 420 Festival. And we got a booth. Freddie hooked me up with a free booth. Because he kind of we kind of knew him from the fish hawk, right? And that was it. That's how flood tide started. I had no idea that that the nexus, um, the birthplace was at mm-hmm. the four twenty fest. Yep, crazy. And, yeah, okay. And that was the first time we had publicly sold things to people. Sell out at the show. Yeah, I mean, we sold a lot of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think the only shirt we have is the white one with the yellow tarpon. Art that yep. you, you sent me. I sent you because I. The other one you know, that you had. I'm, uh, I'm really, I don't want to say gentle, but like I have, a, I have a lot of t-shirts. Yeah. So I, I, I've got a good rotation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's certain t-shirts and that yellow tarpon t-shirt was one of my faves. Yeah. So like I always, you know, made sure it, it got taken care of. And I can't remember exactly. We were talking one day, and I said something about, you know, well, I'm, I think it was probably a phone call. I was like, well, Paul Puckett, I'm wearing your damn yellow tarpon yeah. T-shirt right now. And you're like, holy shit, no way. That's like. Yeah, I don't even have. I didn't even yeah, have Yeah, you one. said, I don't even have yeah. one. And, and I said, well, fuck it. I'll bring it to you. And the mail, I think, is where it showed up. I, I mailed it to you. Yep. And I, I think we struck the deal. And I said, because y'all were about to move out of the old HQ. Yeah, yeah, the sign. And I said, hey, that, that tarpon, good, clean living sign that's on yeah. the side of the building, y'all taking that to the new store? And you said, no, it's not in great shape. And I said, well, let's do old artwork for old artwork trade. And it was after last year's um, party, yeah, the Taylor's Ball, I came over here and I uninstalled it off the building. Where is it now? It's it's at a, at the house at Castleberry. Okay. Um, when I got it back home, I actually put frame on the back side of it uh, to okay, stiffen cool. it up. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I put clear coat on it, cool. and it's been stored out of the weather underneath there. Oh, cool. So and you're able to do something with it. Well, yeah, because uh, we we just bought the new house mm-hmm. in New Smyrna, and <laughs> it's going to be there at the new house. Just yeah. haven't figured out quite where. We've got like a pretty tropically you know backyard nice so uh, i'm gonna install it somewhere back there where it can be appreciated yeah well good yeah and that's that's so that's how that all kind of happened so uh, so you and will have it will will was the uh financier yeah to to get you started it started with like 1200 bucks and it's kind of been like that honestly until 
a few years ago. We've always just kind of lived off the next $1,200. Right. And the next $1,200. You start with two shirts. Well, all the money you made from those two shirts. You got to roll back in. To have four shirts, you don't make money. Right. You don't make any money. To have four shirts, and then to have eight shirts, you use all the money you made from those four shirts. And at first, I was, like, taking some of that money and, like, spending it. And then it was like, well, where's that money? Like, oh, like, you mean we didn't make any money? No, because we can't get the other four shirts unless we use that money. We just So in the apparel business, you never really make a whole lot of money if you're growing. Right. You're putting it right back into creating that growth. It's crazy, but it's just true. Like, and uh, and it's it's all come to this point where we have this space. Like, we've got a new buddy, a uh, new partner of mine, uh, Jeff Patman, that I grew up with in Dallas. He kind of climbed on board three years ago, and then now we've got a new partner in Bozeman, Montana. In this past weekend, you know, if you were to take ten years and bring it to this day today, we were in Bozeman this past weekend kind of a partners meeting and like a growth meeting talking about the next plans. We have big plans in in the spring of spring of 21. Okay. We're going to be kind of bringing a whole new line of stuff. And that was what we were meeting about this past weekend. And there was a moment in that room. I've got this long table. We've got these eight people sitting in here, four of us that are part of flood tide. And then four people that are, kind of part of the people helping us and the slideshow presentations going on. And all of a sudden I got kind of emotional. Like all of a sudden I kind of got teary eyed because here we are in this moment where this thing started as kind of, I'm not going to say a joke, but it was never meant to get to this point. Right. I would never plan on starting an apparel company, but here I was in Montana with a designer that flew from San Francisco a woman that used to work for Sims and Sitka, um, all the partners, Lawson, the marketing guy. I'm like, holy shit, this is like a real thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And it kind of hit me all of a sudden. I got a little teary-eyed thinking about it, honestly. It hit me. I got past it. I kind of had to, like, like kind of wipe my, my eyes a little bit without anyone really seeing me and realizing that this is pretty it, fucking it cool. It had to be a pretty prideful moment. Yeah. And it was pretty crazy because I didn't think it was going to... Well, first of all, I never thought this would happen. And second of all, I never thought it was going to take 10 years to get to the point where we could finally do like the next big thing. Right. Because we have... I think we have the followers for it. And mm-hmm. I think we have the people that don't know their followers for it yet that do, are out there. Do you have the right ambassadors in place? Yeah. And that's all stuff we have to figure out. And that's all part of the, that's all part of the puzzle. I mean, it is... It is kind of a goofball thing, but it is you need that stuff. Right. You need the right people. Yeah. The right people, because we're, I think when people look at Flood Tide, I think they they see the authenticity and the, and the legitness of it, because we're not just, we're not trying to make clothing. Well, I think, you know, that, I've, t- I've talked to you before, just, you know, when we're having a beer, whether it was, or, or when we fish together, the, the times that you've been down on my skiff authenticity matters and whether it's Haller brothers or flood tide. And I know I've told you this, I really enjoy the time that I get to come up and spend in Charleston, especially with your 
and, and I use it with air quotes, your crew. Yeah. Because there's definitely a vibe. There's definitely a feeling, this kinship, this friendship, this lifestyle that happens here. And your apparel brings it to life. And it's like, yeah, I'm kind of, you know, I'm a member of the tribe, so to speak. You know, I'm part of this this group, this culture. Yeah. And I think Flood Tide and, and your artwork, obviously, is a big, it's the, it is what it is. Yeah. But what you all are doing and what Howler is doing really speaks to that it really grabs you and makes you say i want to be part of that that's that's what you aspire to you know a lot of people want to live that lifestyle and and, and the it's effaced by wearing your apparel yeah so and it's it's not you know left on me i mean when i see a cool hallow shirt and i buy it and i wear it i want to feel like i'm part of it too right just because i have this doesn't mean that I don't want that as well. Because when I walk to some places and I'm wearing a like a Howler shirt or something, because they're badass and they're creative and they're cool and they're different, I want to feel like I'm part of it as well. Right. You know what I mean? So it speaks not just to people that aren't in the industry quoting mm-hmm. quotes. Right. It speaks to me as well. Like well, you so. know, you and I were just in Denver. What two weeks ago? Three weeks ago? Whatever it was for the big fly fishing trade show. Yeah. And when we went to Fish Pond headquarters and saw the, you know, Wrinkle Neck Mules playing, you know, big part of that band, majority of that band are founders and guys from Howler Brothers. Yeah. And I've listened to their music in my truck, singing like a fool going down the road for years. Uh, yeah. And to actually, for the first time, get to hang out and see it live. Yeah. It was like, man, this is really fucking cool. Yeah, it made you feel like... And it made me, like, really, and it sounds cheesy, but fall in love with the brand again. Yeah, totally. Like, you know, and if that makes any sense. It. You're kind of part of it, too. You've been wearing their clothes for a while. Yeah. And it, it, it shows the importance on the commercial side of creating a brand. That you can identify with. That you can identify with, and that you don't have to try. To, like, we don't really try hard around here. We're doing the things that we do and the things we love. To, same thing with those guys. They're they're surfy and fishy, mm-hmm. and you believe it because they really don't have to lie. They're not lying to you. No, huh? This is what we like to do. So we don't, here at Flood Tide, we don't, we're not trying. It's not hard for us to come up with something that we think is cool. Now, see, you've lived in the South long enough that I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a little Southern <laughs> culture at you. I don't know. I might be confused by this still. We'll see. So, what we would call somebody that's trying to pull one over on you and create something that's not really true is they're putting on airs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's certainly nothing about this place where you're putting on airs. It's just genuine. It's it's who you want to, you know, it, everybody wants to come hang out with Paul that's, or that's, Will that's or Lawson or Ben. Want to, we want people to feel like they're part of something. Yeah. I think you guys are doing a pretty good job we, at we that. We have fun with it, man. It's, it's uh, I, I wake up. I don't, have to, I don't have an alarm clock anymore. 
I wake up either because I'm waking up or my dog's waking me up or my wife's waking me up. Which one of the dogs? Oh, Willie. Willie Nelson's the early waker. Norman, like, he would sleep till nine if he had the choice. Willie Nelson starts fucking walking around the damn bed, trotting around. Even if I took him out at four in the morning, he needs to go to the bathroom Uh at, like, 6.45 in the morning. And I wake up around seven anyway, so it's not really a big deal. But I wake up and honestly can't wait to come into work. Like I have, like I, I feel like I'm walking into heaven here. Like I love it. Everyone that works here is a blast. We all have fun. It's it's all the things that I've done in my life to feel so lucky to be able to to do this. And I don't get to pain as much anymore right now, which is frustrating. But it's just the realistic aspect of what's going on. I get to be creative. I get to draw designs for the company and draw some logos here and there for other people and other companies and other people needing things. And I'm doing more illustration and drawing stuff these days. And I am actually painting mm-hmm. now knowing that Christmas is coming around. I've got some commissions for Christmas and stuff. So I'll be having to paint in the next few months, which is good and bad. Right. You're kind of getting forced into, you have to paint this, which is good because on the commercial side of things, it's a business and I need a little income. Sure. Um, but you know, my my hope one day is to be able to paint more paintings that I want to do. Now, I know you've done some of the more recent paintings that I've seen. You you have done some paintings that are trophies for tournaments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of the last, that was like in June. That's kind yeah. of the last paintings you can say I've done uh, for the Don Holly, mm-hmm. which is a huge honor, like to be called, hey, we love a couple paintings from you for the Don Holly. Like that's yeah. pretty awesome. Like four years ago, I would have done anything for that. And I guess that's just kind of how life works. Like you find yourself. Every painting I do, it needs to be better than the last one, and I feel like that's always happened. And eventually, you get to this place where, not that you feel like you deserve to be being called from the Holly, but right. you find yourself in that position. It's a big affirmation. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't deserve anything, but it's pretty damn cool when you get that call and you hang up and be like, man, that feels pretty good. Yeah. So those and kind of things are pretty cool. The milestones. other cool aspect, I would think, um, is that you know that that piece of artwork is going to be appreciated not only on an artistic level, but there's gonna that art is gonna be hanging in someone's house. Yeah. And it's gonna represent their accomplishment. Their accomplishment. Yeah. And it's gonna tie you together with that person. Yeah. And and they're gonna be like it, it's gonna have a place of honor in their home. Yeah. And people are gonna visit that home and they're gonna be like, Wow, that's that's you know, great. Cool. Yeah, What's that about? Yeah, it'll have and a, they'll it'll be like, have a little, little label under it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so no, it's cool. It that's that kind of stuff doesn't get old. Like same way that last week in Bozeman, I walked into some shithole bar. When I say shithole bar, like in a good way. Yeah, because hell I yeah, love shithole bars. Fuck yeah. Uh, the filling station in Bozeman. I walk in. There's a guy wearing a flood tide hat. Like that doesn't get old. Right. That's like that be never gets old. Cool. Like I got a text the other day from my wife. Harris Teeter saw some wearing a flood tide hat. Like that's badass. Uh-huh. Like that'll never get old. Right. I can't imagine what it's like to be like Yvonne Chouinard because Patagonia hats are everywhere. Right. Or Sims hats are everywhere. But even if that was that 
that case, I would still get up to him and be like, man, thanks for wearing our hat. Like, that's pretty damn cool. Right. People are paying 30 bucks to wear that piece of fucking cotton and mesh on their hat, and that's... $30 is not cheap. No, huh? So, along the lines of trophy paintings, it's still cool to see people wearing your hat and out in bumfuck wherever. And, you know, the... The days of uh, doing the uh, cliff boxes mm-hmm. has kind of passed for you. Yeah, it's not that I don't like to do them. Honestly, it's just it's not as easy as you think because you can't really draw on them. Right. The pencil doesn't take the pencil. And, and I'm not going to say it's worth my time, but it's just I'd rather be creating a painting or I'd rather be doing something that's more permanent. Right. Because those cliff boxes, they wear off, and they're kind of... It's just not important to me anymore. So I make them like 400 bucks. Someone wants a cliff box, It's gonna, sorry, right. but it's going to be $400. But or, you know... Whatever that price is. What did, what's your experience been with with uh, the Paul Puckett artwork on a cliff box? Do you think they really get used? I hope so. Same way with like Yeti, Yeti coolers. Like, right. Same Which, way, I don't really love doing those anymore anyway, but I do them for, like, the charity stuff. Like sure. Clapton's for Clearing Water. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, if, if you're going to donate it to a Captain's or, or, you know, Charleston Waterkeeper, let's do it. I'm, I'm and down you did one. I, I watched you working on one out in Denver. Yeah. Um, and, and I said, well, who's this? I think it was for Indie Fly, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, at the time, I was like, so what's this? You're like, I'm not sure. Yeah, and I wasn't. Yeah, uh, you're like, I'm just doing it, and Yeti will figure out who yeah. they can help with it, which the, was pretty cool. The last cool. 10 minutes, someone came from Indie Fly and said, man, we're going to auction this thing off, man. Thanks so much. That's the first time I've ever done a trout on a Yeti, on a Yeti cooler. Oh, wow. Okay. So... But yeah, for the charities like that and those those type of things, I'm all about it. But I'm just not really into doing much anymore. I don't I don't promote it. Let's right, just say that. Right. So, but Yeti knows I do them. Captains knows I do them. Well, I think it was. Uh, when were you last down in Florida? Um, gosh, it's was it back in the spring? You guys came cruising through the Taylor Park. You you did yeah, you yeah. did quite possibly the greatest yeah. cliff box. Ever. Yeah. It was like March or April. I yeah. Think. yeah. 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 And, and we'll just leave it at that. That, yeah. that, that. <laughs> if you really zoom in on that, that picture that he has, yes. you really kind of see what's it, on there. It's but, pretty awesome. Yeah, um, some sort of octopus. Yeah. I if I had to. And, and, and there's some kind of tarpon on the back. It's, mm. it's, uh, pretty epic. <laughs> well, yeah, you uh, smoked a pork butt and yeah. fed us beer and we had a good time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, 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 and you know that's kind of, uh, you know, just like you guys uh, love coming to work. Uh, we love hanging out at the Taylor Park. It's just kind of uh, become this like refuge from daily monotony, and, and it's those kind of friendships and the brotherhood. Uh, to be a little cheesy, no, it's that, that that really, yeah. I mean, it, it gives a meaning to life yeah um so uh you've mentioned earlier that uh one of the other things that was uh part of your childhood uh growing up was baseball yep and uh we've been going at this for a while and i'm hoping everybody's 
learned a little bit more about uh, Paul Puckett and where he came from and uh, the journey that has brought him to where he is today. And uh, with baseball in mind, um, and you being a musician, I'm going to ask you to tell me what is Paul Puckett's walkout song? Wow. Like walk out to the home base. Like Yeah, Paul Next up to next bat. Next up to bat, Paul Puckett. It's gonna be a ZZ Top song. Oh yeah? Yeah. It's probably gonna be beer drinkers and hellraisers. Beer drinkers and hellraisers. Yeah. Uh, what you want to come home with me? That's it. It's got to be Breed Drinkers and Hellraisers. All right. So there we have it. Paul Puckett's going to step now that's up. A, that's the on-the-spot answer. Okay. I'm just going to go with that. All right. Yeah. There might be a more delicate answer out there that I could really think about, but I don't want to hold this thing up. So so when you blast that dinger after that great walk-up, yeah. You just gonna drop the bat and trot those bases, or are you gonna hold on to it halfway down the first baseline? What's gonna, your opinion? I'm gonna on drop that? the bat. I'm gonna drop the bat. Yeah. I mean, the, this World Series when Bregman did that, I mean, maybe he was just so caught up and just forgot that he had the bat in his hand. And then you had the the D, the Washington guy that kind of copied that in the next game. I'm just like, come on, guys. Yeah, a little too much showmanship yeah, there. It's not I mean, about you. I could see Bregman honestly forgetting that he had the bat in his hand because I can't imagine what it's like to be in a World Series hitting home run that's so important, whatever. But, yeah, just drop the bat. Let's yeah. just drop the bat. Yeah, dropping the bat. All there right. But I am going to trot. I'm probably going to run because I've never hit a home run like that before. I'm probably going to run and be so nervous. I just want to get home and high-five my boys. Right. Not going to trot. I'm going to fucking run. You're going to dig it out. Probably so. All right. Yeah. Well, Paul, thanks for sitting down. It's been an absolute pleasure to have a few beers with you. Yeah, man. And uh, I sounded pretty probably loose lipped. That's every now and then if that, I listen. you know. It's, Let's not forget you're going to see Ryan Bingham. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're uh, going to head out tomorrow morning. Uh, headed back up to East Tennessee. One of my greatest friends. Uh, I've known him since sixth grade. Uh, hooking up with him, and on Friday night we're going to be down in Knoxville, Tennessee, down in Knox, Vegas, going awesome. to the Tennessee Theater, see a little Ryan Bingham show. It's my first time seeing Ryan Bingham live. Be good, man. Um, can't wait. And uh, probably turn around and burn back down to Florida and get back after that day job for a few. And uh, we've got Thanksgiving coming up. Which, yeah. Uh, Starting to feel great. that holiday vibe, yeah, aren't you? Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, we were down at the Yeti um, shop down on King Street earlier tonight. And uh, as we were going back over to the other side, dropping the wife and the kids off, um, I saw the first Christmas tree in somebody's what? apartment right what? there. Yeah. I even I said, look, somebody's got the Christmas what tree up the already. Hell? Yeah, it's a little aggressive, a little aggro. I mean, we're day after Thanksgiving, people. Yeah. Like, Sarah will not vi budge on that. No. Like, she has to get every ounce and second of Christmas tree in her life. Yes. By 9 a.m. after Thanksgiving, we will, we will have. Actually, not on Black Friday, because we will be open here. 
But we will have a Christmas tree the day after Thanksgiving. All right, so rule of thumb at the Puckett household, when does the Christmas tree come down? Oh, the day after Christmas. Day after Christmas. Oh, it's gone. Gone. She is so quick on that. Now, if we're, obviously, if we're doing stuff and we're, I don't know, it could be three days after, but right. it will be gone as Definitely, soon as definitely down by New Year's. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You guys do a big uh, New Year's lunch, mm, dinner? She comes from the Pennsylvania Dutch culture. Okay. So pork and sauerkraut. Oh, okay. It's so fucking good. See, we're... we're you God, know, it's so good. Um, we're a big pork and greens and black-eyed peas. Black-eyed pea was my Texas culture. Now, see, greens... Uh, in our southern culture, you eat greens on New Year's Day because green represents money, a very good year coming up. It's uh-huh. for good luck. Black-eyed peas and, and rice and, and some good pork. That's what it's we were, just, you black-eyed know, peas and rice. Yeah. yeah so. But, yeah. Well, yeah, go. we've uh, got the, the holidays are coming at us like a freight train. They're coming quick. Well, next time you're in town, I'm going to host a bourbon and water with Larry Luttrell. All right. Sounds good. And we'll interview the shit out of you. Yeah. All right, buddy. Well, thanks, man. All right, Paul. Thanks a bunch. And uh, folks, if you don't already know, Paul Puckett, Flood Tide Co., and uh, check them out. We've got some awesome apparel that you surely will need. And if you're lucky, get some artwork from Paul Puckett. Mm-hmm. I've got a, I've got that one painting that I got from you that is absolutely the pride and joy of oh, our household. Yeah. yeah, the trout. The, the trout. That's yeah. uh, it's a colorful one. It's a 2011 Paul Puckett yeah, original. There you go. And we're pretty pretty smitten with it. I love it. All right. Well, uh, that has been a beer, or a few beers yeah, a few. with uh, Paul Puckett, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Wish. I guess it'd be a fish No easy way to figure what I'd be I'd have a pectoral dorsal Tail fin and an anal But I'd choose a cold river or the sea Red fish pretty Tails up, mouth is muddy Always in dirty water that ain't me Gills like a pair of titties, body short, kind of stumpy. Half a pound of flower heart could be me. If I had one last wish, well, I guess I'd be a fish. No way to figure what I'd be. I'd have a pectoral dorsal, tail fin, and an anal. But I'd choose a cold river or sea. Scott Street crab, and you can catch them on a bed. We'll eat anything that they see, but I think I'd be a small mouth, no way you 